Oh, hey there, listeners and juicers. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that if you have fallen in love with the Draw Your Dice podcast and want to help put some new fruit on the table, but don't feel comfortable making a monthly commitment, well, you can support the show via the ACAST supporter feature. No gift too large, nor too small. Just click on the link in the show description and know that I am sending you the strongest hug when you do so. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. What if more games just had as many people touching them as possible? Be, and it was easy because the rules weren't complex and they weren't doing rule work. They were saying give your voice to this, you know, like you look at this thing that we've made and make it a little bit yours. My name is Jeremy Gage and welcome to the Draw Your Dice podcast. This is an educational show involving all things tabletop role-playing industry. Listen alongside me as we hear from creators, entrepreneurs, and supporters about their personal best practices, principles, and philosophies. I encourage anyone from the budding game designer to a seasoned publisher and everyone in between Sit down with us and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. Thank you for coming to the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy Gage, as you heard in the intro. But as always, this show is never about me. It is about who I have brought to you today. And today I have brought to you a fantastic guest who I have worked with in the past several times over the course of my budding ingenue podcast press career. This person is behind Catholic Bomb Co. This person is behind the House of Broken Loaves. This person is one of the designers and team director behind Plus One EXP. I'd like to welcome to the show, Tony Facinda. <laughs> I like that as you were doing the first half of that, people were, had no idea who you were talking yeah. about. Like <laughs> zero, zero relations. Hello, Tony. Welcome to the show. Hey, how's it going? It goes well. Just hanging out with you, drinking some tea, and getting ready to dive deep into who you are as a tabletop enthusiast. I, I, I'm looking forward to it. Also, too. I, you know. I'm never jealous when I'm not on somebody's show, but I'm also always jealous when I'm not on somebody's <laughs> show. I'm always like, yeah, no, no, that makes sense. That makes sense. That makes sense. And then just secretly like wait and stare at them in the corner until <laughs> I am very excited to be invited on. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Uh, as always for the top of the show, Tony, would you just give a brief introduction of who you are, how you present yourself to the internet? Please feel free to add any plugs or anything of that nature, links to get in touch with you, just because I 
want to guarantee that people can find you and send you dollars? Yeah. So the, my name is Tony Vicenda. I do a lot of different things. Uh, you could probably classify that I am a serial entrepreneur, which feels dirty when it comes out of my mouth. I'm actually just somebody who's hyper creative, has a lot of ideas and is usually able to get them close enough to being finished to present them to the world. And sometimes those ideas take off a little bit. And so I, I do make make beard balms for a living. I do live in a neighborhood where uh, I want people to know that they're loved and cared for by their neighbors. But uh, a lot of people know me because on a fairly regular basis, I say this. My name is Tony Vicinda and I'm Chief Alchemist at Plus One EXP. That's a weird little brand that multi-classes in tabletop game design, beard and skincare alchemy and the Bardic College of Content Creation and our hope and desires to help amazing players find great designers. Wait, nope. Amazing designers find great players who love their games and help amazing players find great designers whose games they can love. And we do that in a lot of different ways, but basically I make uh, tabletop role-playing games. I work with teams now to develop tabletop role-playing games. We also make beard bombs that are inspired by the TTRPG tradition, so classic Dungeons & Dragons stats currently coming soon. A lot of different little sub-brands of things like lip balm and lotion bars and other stuff like that that are all inspired by kind of classic tabletop top role-playing tropes. And uh, I also just make videos for other people's games. You can find those at youtube.com slash plus one EXP. You can find the other stuff at plus one EXP.com or uh, you can follow us at plus one EXP on any social media platform, which will connect you to like our Twitch account, our itch.io page where you can pick up games in a digital format, other stuff like that. And maybe Jeremy has links down below somewhere. I will some in fact have links down below for your access listeners. Amazing. Additionally for the icebreaker of the show, in case there's someone listening who doesn't know who you are, would you also walk us through sort of your lineage of tabletop? You know, what was the first game that got you started in the hobby? And then what was maybe the first game that got you to start designing or helping with designs? Yeah, I grew up in the American South, specifically Texas, not in the satanic panic, but on the tail end of the satanic panic with a looking back parent who was probably dramatically influenced by that that type of media and that type of news because I played I played Dungeons and Dragons I think it was the red box set when I was like 8 or 9 at it was an old friends friend of a friend's older brother's set and we played and I played I played at a half elf which was also my my class because that's how it worked and I played that once and fell in love with the idea and then never went back to that person's house ever again during middle school some friends were trying to get up a vampire game and that seemed like something I would love to do with all of my my theater friends it never happened there's just a lot of talk about it which is a, a, a huge part of anyone's RPG lineage it's not just the games you played but the games you talked about playing but never actually did but the first game that I sat down to play extensively that you could still to this day probably not convince me is not one of the best games that there is, is GURPS, which is the generic universal role-playing system by Steve Jackson Games. It is 100% the worst name for a game almost ever. They are well aware of that. And I did it because I was a demo agent for Steve Jackson Games, but I also had had this long-going affair with with the idea of playing role-playing games and a parent who, anytime they went to the hobby shop to buy me role-playing books, they would always come back and be like, oh, they were out, which thinking back as an adult seems impossible given that it was the middle of the rise of third edition and that my mom 
was just terrified that demons were going to eat my soul. And so I, I played, I played GURPS for, for three years in a campaign that was, had been going for 20 years before me across four or five tables at, at, for most of that time. And it was a multiverse, like cross time, cross space setting, which is fairly normal for GURPS. And uh, they had an amazing wiki that detailed a lot of what had been being played for about the 10 years I had jumped into. So just a ton of data to take in in addition to everything GURPS is. And then after that, I I played a lot of other games. I would play whenever I got the chance. I ran my own GURPS session for about a year and a half with some friends, did a lot of just indie one shots for smaller systems, did a lot of board game nights, did a lot of other other different pieces. And then, you know, I started listening to Potty, Party of One, not Party of One, which is a great show. You should go check it out. Go listen to it right now. I started listening to One Shot on the One Shot Network and our local game store had a great collection of indie rpgs so got really into them then that is how i first heard of jeff stormer who runs party of one podcast it's how i first heard of a lot of people whose work i came to really love and when we were talking about launching the beard bomb brand of plus one one of my friends was like well you should write your own rpg because i'd written a couple of tabletop games at that point in time just for fun just for home use you know it was before kickstarter or anything like that so there was no concept for how you would crowdfund them i didn't really know how to how to pitch necessarily those games but people did love those games i should probably pull them out and do something with them eventually but they were like you you know how to design games you should design a a short rpg and so i designed a four-page rpg that was a beards and beyond. And that led me into the world of, of creation. So we, we pushed that out and about 2000 people downloaded the free version of it. A couple hundred people gave us feedback on what worked and what didn't. And then we just didn't do anything with it for a couple of years until I decided to put it up on a Kickstarter and launch it. But the entire time playing more and more small indie games, you know, I've, I've played Dungeons and Dragons a, a number of times since then. It's just never been. I love. I loved the original D and D. I love Second Edition. There's tons of problematic stuff in there, but I love the way the narrative emerges in those games. Uh, I always enjoyed that, but never. It was before the OSR Renaissance had really happened, and so it wasn't really accessible. And I just Fourth Edition was fine. I think it's better than Fifth Edition, but I will play both of those games and enjoy both of those games when I play them with people who are enjoyable people to play with. That is. I mean, honestly, that's that's beautiful. You know what I'm saying? Especially Beards and Beyond. Like, I didn't know how, you know, old the game is, right? Because ancient. it's ancient. It's an ancient game. It's, a it's not ancient. That, that I may, from from what I said, the time skip may have sounded a little bit different. It, but it is, yeah. It I, I think I came up with it. Trying to think of where exactly I was living at the time because that's the easiest way to space things out. It would have been 2016, 2017, oh. probably, probably 2017 in the summer. And then we made it and just kind of put it put it out as a lead magnet to 100% capture emails to build an email list, uh, which we were successful at. But then was like, I really enjoy the game and it's a really fun concept and it's an earnest RPG. Not like I can't, it's, it's really hard for me to not not do something earnestly like it's hard for me to not put significant emotional energy into making something a good version of what it is rather than just something i can market my wife my wife always is like oh you could sell like you know you could sell anything to anyone and i'm like you know i really can't i can't sell things i don't believe in or don't like like i am not the kind of person who has the capability to be like buy this thing 
that is bad or you don't need or I don't think would be good for you. Right. And so like when I make things, I always think about them in the context of like, I want to make something that is easy for me to go to somebody and feel comfortable saying, I would love you to check this out. You know, I would love you to take a look at this. And even then marketing your own stuff, selling your own stuff is always the hardest thing to do. Like it's way easier to, to sell good things someone else has done than the stuff that you've made. Cause it's so much easier to like evangelize someone else's like cha- who changed your life or who changed your perceptions or your, you know, it's like, Oh wow. I didn't think that you could do that with the D 20. This is ripping awesome. Yeah, there's that. And I think the other big thing is we're also aware of our own cognitive bias on some level. Mm -hmm. Like we know we love something. And if we made it and we love it, I think I think there's a level at which as much as people picture Americans and Western culture as telling everybody they're special and they can do anything. I think we tell individuals that while simultaneously just crapping all over their work constantly. We we tell people that they are exemplary while constantly saying, but what you do isn't. And and I don't want people to fall into the trap of what you do makes you who you are. But I think there's a weird line there in being able to just kind of name, hey, what you do has inherent value. It doesn't make up who you are, but who you are also has inherent value. And I don't think we always know how to resolve those things in in the work that we do professionally or for sale, at least. Sometimes even within the context of just what we do for enjoyment, if we if we make art or something else. I talk to people all the time. I interview people all the time who do something amazing. And when I ask them why they haven't shared it with anybody, they say it's because it's no big deal. Right. Like, mm-hmm. but then you, then you start to unpack it with them. Well, why don't you think it's a big deal? Well, everyone does it. Everyone does something, but not everyone. No, like no one's done this, the thing that you've done, like it is unique. Even, even, even if it's very similar to something else, your unique voice added to it gives it a lens that the other thing didn't have. And so let's talk about the appropriate level on which to share that. Like I know people who have done globally influential work from their hometowns, but who don't ever talk about it and not in a selfless way, but because they're self-conscious and don't think it has any value. And it's always just crazy to me to sit down with people and hear that over and over again. But I experience the same dissonance in my own life when I go to talk about my own work. Ditto. Absolutely ditto. My marketing for the podcast is minimal at best (laughs) (laughs) non-existent at normal wow what a what a great what a great path do you think that those because you grew up in sort of that era that's what's in because a lot of your games you talk about have lots of osr feels to them do you think those games have influences influenced those principles like it's just nostalgia things that won't ever leave you I don't I don't think so because I mean I stepped into GURPS really with fourth edition and then picking up a lot of third mm. edition stuff, which GURPS is unlike other games is the same through each edition. Like it's not like it's this weird rebirth process from game to game to game. It's it's pretty consistent from even its proto version to the final version of fourth edition that it's currently in. It's a it's a pretty consistent game. You're not seeing core mechanics shift, you're seeing point values kind of refine over time. The a lot of that comes from I'm I'm somebody who um like I did love the idea of Dungeon Crawl. Like if I think back to that that sitting down and playing, you know, the half elf 
Like I did love the simplicity of that. And I think at the, in the moment, what I most remember was because it was very grid map tabletop oriented was just thinking, but I want to go somewhere else. Right. And then like I grew, I came up in age with like, I was the target audience for like Warcraft and world of Warcraft as far as an age demographic goes. And I came up with a lot of that. And I remember just constantly playing those games and just thinking like, but what if I want to do something else? Right. And it was my constant frustration with video games. Like, what if I want to do something else? And a lot of traditional games are very granular, very linear. And you had a lot of times GMs who didn't know how to flex things out because they were a teenager reading out of an adventure who didn't know how to yes and or say what's next or, you know, like hadn't, hadn't played a lot of other games. And so I love, I love the way that, the traditional principles of OSR create a very minimalist rule set and then make an attempt to just open up the world. And I think GURPS does that. Like GURPS, if anybody's never played it, you'll spend hours on character creation. I mean, like I could whip out a character in 15 minutes, but it's a character I won't be satisfied with. I'll want to spend like time reading through things, thinking about things, adjusting the way my stats and skills and advantages, all of which cost points and GURPS. And even my disadvantages play into each other loop. And it's not necessarily about min-maxing, though there's a, there is a bit of that in there. Mm-hmm. It's about it's about creating the, the character's incarnation in the way that lets says this is a character that does what I want them to do. And it's a very... It's a process that, that has tons of options in it. So you can build almost anything legitimately, not just like you can say it looks like whatever you can, you can make it that thing. Right. But there's another way to do that too, without spending hours. And that's to say, okay, who is your character? What do they look like? What do they do? You know, and what are they? And then be like, okay, cool. They can do all those things, be all those things and act in that way. And then move forward. That's a different way that I also really love. And I and I really don't have a lot of love for anything in between. I either want to spend hours custom crafting a character so that the rules can just become roll 3d6 and roll under. Or I want to spend minutes answering a few questions, coming up with a few ideas, and then sitting down to play and finding out the rest of that stuff. If I create a GURPS character, I want to write a two to three page backstory. If I create an OSR <laughs> character... I want to roll some dice and then make notes as I go. And so I love both of those things, but I do think ultimately what I've always been searching for in my gameplay experiences are the freedom to just go over there. Like the place that in the video game or on the mapped adventure or whatever doesn't exist. That's what I want to be able to do. And I'm sure that says something deep and unhealthy about who I am, but it is what at the end of the day, my heart desires is to just go explore that space. Like last night we played Mouse Ritter, which is up on Kickstarter right now, probably Ooh. not at the time of release, but at the time of recording for a new box set. And it's an OSR game. It's into the odd, but it's also like if you're rolling dice at the end of this you're you've failed in some way, shape or form, and you're going to probably get hurt when you're rolling dice. But it's, it's a great game that we just started out with like, here's who we are. Here's a couple, here's our backgrounds. Here's our, our three stats. Here's the two or three items that we have with us. Now let's play. And what we discovered was we were the kind of people who would get people drunk, get guards drunk, lie our way into things and pretend to be a blue collar union that was there to do repairs on this giant suit of armor that was also this wizard's tower that we were going up into and use bureaucracy as a weapon. Like that's what we learned through play. Had you set down Ty and me and Max and Aaron beforehand, 
there's no way we would have come up with that as the idea for how our characters were going to approach that. Whereas if, if we had built GURPS characters, right, there would still be surprises along the way, but we would have probably hyper-refined our characters into very specific roles with very specific abilities that would have given us a lot more, this is how we're going to approach and solve problems specifically. And you lose a lot of the openness of narrative. I actually think, and people say stuff like this a lot, like that OSR games are lyric games. And there's a, there's, there's a lot of fun in that, in that, you know, that mental shit post right there. But the reality is they are absolutely story games when played properly. The biggest thing is they're a story game that doesn't put the story on rails to tell you how you want to say it, which I think story games that put the story on rails are also really fun to play because you're trying to tell a specific type of story. In OSR, you're telling the story of adventurers doing a thing, go, right? <laughs> and, and that's it. And so how they do that, what they do that, the, the edge of the emergent narrative is far more broad. And I think you end up in really amazing and interesting places because of that. And and as somebody who wasn't steeped in in OSR, which some people would refer to as the OSR, who who came on the tail end of Google Plus, though I did love Google Plus, and realized that community existed right before it died, I I'm not as beholden to the idea of this is what the OSR is, so much as here's what OSR style of play and design can do in a design space. And I am I'm deeply in love with a lot of those ideas. I love that. That's going to be a great highlight and also a great segue into Tony. Let's talk about some of those OSR designs that you have been making recently. Sure. I have, I have a couple different games that I've created and I, I would, I, I always say though, I'll probably have to shift this given some recent conversations that most of my games are OSR inspired, but indie designed. And then mm-hmm. the question becomes immediately, okay, what does indie design mean? And but for me, I just mean independently without like without funding, without anybody telling me here are the rules I have to meet up to with the complete freedom that independent creation brings and all the burdens that it, that it also creates that I've created these games. So that's how I use that term, regardless of how anybody else uses that term. But it means that I won't necessarily always be beholden to every OSR principle. So like my first game, Beards, once we, Beards and Beyond, once we we updated it and, and put it into its final kind of zine form, which is instead of being a four-page, uh, two-page for GM, two pages for players, RPG, it is a uh, 52-page zine with some supplementary digital materials and tools. The... The game itself is, it's not an OSR system. I mean, you're not rolling D20s. It doesn't have high lethality, though death is an option. It's a very narrative game. However, I borrow a lot in the way that I think the game should be run from OSR principles. Because I think, you know, OSR principles guide a lot of, hey, the the rationale of the world and, and the rulings the GM makes about what's happening in the world, or the beard master in our case, the BM, the big BM, that those matter more in the moment than anything else. And so, but there's a, there's an inherently collaborative process that we've built in where we have the, the, the beard master ask the players questions about the world that also give them mechanical edge. Because one of my biggest frustrations as GM was always getting my, my mechanically crunchy, like crunch loving friends to embrace the narrative aspects of role playing. And so beards was really at the end of the day, not just an experiment in can I make this game and what are the things I'm going to like about it? But in a, 
in a narrative process that also invites mechanically minded players to try narrative because it rewards them mechanically. So we created something called the motif system in that, which was me taking uh, a lot of what I love about rulings over not. rules and following the narrative of the world and working with my friend Alexi to try to codify that into a mechanical process. Uh, I mean, I think you've done so. I, I think you've done a tremendous job in, in executing that for sure. I I guess the first thing I would like for you to do is why don't you tell people like what is Beards and Beyond? Give a little, give a little intro of like, let me, let me grab the book and read the back of it. (laughs) Cause if I had to remember things, and actually I will say this, it's my favorite Kickstarter video we've ever done. The entire thing is a rhyme. If you go to beardrpg.com, it'll both link you out to where you can buy the game, but it'll also, you should watch the video. Like it's worth two minutes of your time to, <laughs> to watch me do a full on rhyming epic like poem. And it's phenomenally well produced by my friend Mark. So in Beards and Beyond, the beard force, it swirls all around us, ethereal and mysterious. It's follicular tendrils twisting and unbraided through the endless passages of time and the expanses of space. To some, those who bear neither tuft nor bristle, it flows without the slightest notice. However, to those of bearded face and heart, the beard force awakens and envelops them in its mysterious aura. And there it stays, quiet and dormant, until one day when the force of evil conspires and there is a great need. Then the beard force opens the gates between worlds and it turns the chosen bearded few into that which they have always been inside heroes whether lumberjacks or line cooks computer programmers or camp counselors superheroes or spies they are yanked by their captivating chin locks through the portal between worlds as a great voice resonates deep within the bowels of all bearded being the night grows dark the storm grows worse enter now the whiskerverse so it's a game that is literally about people who have beards and those beards give them powers. Those powers are based on the jobs that they had in their previous incarnation and the skills that they have. They use those to fight evil that threatens all of existence in this place called the Whiskerverse, which is a series of floating mysterious items because I'm a big fan of anti-canon spaces. And so by doing that, we let people say, hey, if you just want to play on a fantasy island forever, you play on a fantasy island forever. But also over here, here's a Here's a, you know, a cyberpunk island also, too. And they all exist in the same place. So you can travel between them if you like. But you also then, if you want to just create your own island where your own players play, that sometimes goes to these other places, do that. Discover things in this universe. We put out a map that goes with it that actually helps people be able to to do that and answer some of those questions and, and kind of build out the, the whiskerverse however they want. Um, but it's got turns. It's got rounds. I mean, combat is just effective, actually, as narrative. I'm a big fan of another member of the Brain Trust, Thomas. His game, Runaway Hirelings, had some huge influence on the DNA of Beards for how the GM side, where Runaway Hirelings, your your Hirelings who have been abandoned in a dungeon, and you're as you as you complete one room, you explore into the next. But you basically have to have enough successes to move into that next space. I loved that idea. We implemented it with clocks and beards, mm-hmm. but you basically are discovering the adventure, kind of challenge by challenge. The next thing that comes up is determined really largely when you do it. As a GM, you look at the major story beats that you want your your adventures to go on, but along the way, you're constantly asking them questions. And so it literally could be anything. It's got a very cinematic feel to it. But one of the things I love is that means, you know, um, if you want to try to talk down a baddie, you can absolutely do that. And it's just as effective as, as fighting with them. Now, I have found 
overwhelmingly that most of the players I play with just go for combat, which is weird because I designed a system where like narrative was just as just as good of an option. But we're used to Tony. But here's the thing: in so many other dungeon, how many times have you been in a really intense dungeon crawl, and then you just all decide you're about you just want to talk to the the bad thing that doesn't even present as sentient like and you just want to try to talk like that doesn't happen in beards and beyond and it should like it's designed (laughs) to be able to let you do that a success is a success and a success always moves you closer now again rulings over rules matter so if one of your friends is punching them your ability to talk to them might be significantly harder but the reality is the option is still there even at that moment if you can cut through and convince them that that is a thing you can every every character no matter what can overload their skills which means they forget them for a little while and uh, and use that to cast basically like every every skill is essentially a spell slot right mm-hmm. so uh wordplay is highly encouraged i'm a huge fan of of mm-hmm of puns and punning and wordplay and clever use of a language within games. So that's built into beards and beyond. So like, you know, if you're care, we, we built a character together in the campaign. His name is crew barrel, Til- barrel tilter. He is a, he's a brewer and one of his skills is barrel roll. Right. And so you could literally use that to roll barrels at people. You could also use it if you're if you're in a biplane or in an aerial vehicle to do a barrel roll if you want to. Now, could you land the plane using barrel roll? Probably not, right? Could you (laughs) talk your way past a guard using barrel roll? Probably not. However... Any any instance you can think in which barrel roll might apply both logically in the sense of is this like rolling a barrel or uh, linguistically in the sense of could I generally classify what I'm doing as a barrel roll or rolling a barrel? Then both of those things are are embraced, and we encourage players when they're creating their skills to think about writing skills in a way that creates broad interpretation um, of how they work, right? And because then also barrel roll might mean if he if if he if if crew overloads it, that a giant spectral barrel appears and knocks over all the enemies, right? Uh, because you're going to roll two dice, and and th- it, that can give you up to like god level powers as far as manifesting different things in your environment or other stuff like that. So no matter what background your character has, what they do, you can do that. And again, you can play back to my lineage. You can play cross time, cross space if you want to with people from all different backgrounds. You could also say, hey, we want to play in more of an OSR environment and just add on like classic fantasy tropes. We're going to play in a fantasy world. We are going to be going through a dungeon, but everything still works the same way. Or we're going to be doing whatever type of adventure you're doing, you know, and you could say, but now we, you can only pick a background that would be available in uh, in a fantasy setting or in an OSR setting, which could be thief or warrior, but it also could be like a bartender, like a farmer, like whatever. Like you could pick a mundane background. It would just have to be one that was appropriate to that and just play a level zero concept all the way up to the, your highest levels. And so there's a, there's a lot of fun that can be had by how you can just pick a couple of rules to add on to some of the feel and flavor what it is. And it's intended to be more of a, a kit process that we got it out last February. Um, and then Jeremy knows this, but I've been working with Jeremy and a few other people on expanding some of the ideas around some of the specific uh, regions of the book so that we can pop those out to people and then say, go and make stuff in the beards and beyond universe or hack it and make your own game. Uh, we worked with Matt Sanders to create a phenomenal SRD that's not out yet, uh, but will be soon. And some of the examples in that are like, you know, what if you wanted to play kind of a pride and prejudice style setting, but where family lineage is the thing that gives you your power instead of beards? Or what mm. if you wanted to play a, a sword, a swords and sail setting where either your swords or your ships were the things that granted you 
the power instead of the beard and be able to take it in very different directions. So it'll have everything you need to basically hack beards and beyond, but it'll also have stuff if you want to make your own game where a single item represents power and access to a greater force is is available. It's like the power power sword from God damn it, He-Man, right? He-Man, yeah. yeah. yeah or yeah. Masters of the Universe, as Masters we might of the call universe. it, yeah, in, yeah, in today's day and age. Which I don't know if you've watched yet. No, but not I, yet. It's on my it's on my list. I think I might do it after this interview. Every GM, every GM out there who's ever thought, like, we played a game a long time ago, I want to bring a game back, what's the best way to do that? Should watch. Should watch. Actually, if you're a designer and you're thinking, I want to take an old old game and revitalize it, what should I do? You should watch the new Masters of the Universe. And I'm... I'm going to give a spoiler if that's it. I'm going to give people a little bit of time to decide if they want to skip forward. Yeah, it's also in the first episode. It's, it's in the first episode, but Masters of the Universe spoiler. It, it picks up really at the end of the last one, in, in the end of the original series. And it's like top tier He Man fighting, top tier Skeletor, major showdown. <laughs> and in the first 20 minutes, Skeletor stabs He Man through the back and he dies. <laughs> like. That's where it picks up is 20 minutes into the first episode. The character that we've come to associate with the universe is deceased. Aftermath. Aftermath. What what now? You know? And so that way of opening things up and what they do with the world building and universe is, is tremendous. I find it interesting that like, that is a really fascinating concept of like, what is, what is a setting without its character, right? Because sometimes the character is derived of the setting or the setting is derived. Of, like they're mostly linked. Right. And I find that interesting that like, you know, what is Voltron without Voltron? I guess it's a little bit harder of a one. Maybe there's not as exactly. Well, as but like let's, let's think about this very, guess. this very prominent example right now in RPG space. The best question would be, what does it mean to play an avatar, the role-playing game, if one of you is not the avatar? Right. right. Which I would say I would never want to play a game where one of us was the avatar. That would be like, I know the concept of like all being equal, but it's one of the reasons why like the chosen in Monsters of the Week is not a class I would typically encourage a player to play unless everybody was bought in. Yeah. On that, somebody being the central character, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because the reality is, the avatar is the central character. If you do that, everybody else is supporting cast and you may be powerful in your own right. And it may still be a super fun game to play, but only if everybody's bought in on it. And then again, what happens for a hundred years while Aang is frozen in ice and you're playing with no avatar, right? You're playing in the, the hundred year war kingdom time frame, And that's, I mean, I would encourage you if you if you think the Avatar RPG looks great to go back it. I would encourage you to use it to introduce mm-hmm. people to the hobby. And if you're like, I'm not interested in that noise at all, that's also totally okay because <laughs> they're doing they're doing great and it's awesome to see. I love the folks over at Magpie, but Whoop. at this point, they also don't need your money <laughs> right now. So don't <laughs> don't don't feel pressure to go out and and hop on that train. But it is a really cool thing to explore. Hey, here's a game that really forces you to have a main character what happens when none of you is that main character and i I just i love that i love that idea so other games we have repugnant which we did in partnership with terrible games uh, which is the world's grossest rpg it's a d2 system because i wanted something obnoxious Uh, a lot of it's just inspired by john as a killer art style and he and i had played a couple of osr games and so it is it is probably the most osr game we've ever played but the the system that you use for rolling and resolution is nothing like anything that you would ever find in the osr it's that you literally grab a handful of chits which we the system is called covered in chit and you throw them on this 
this hit sheet, this piece of paper and where they land uh, and what side they land on is basically like casting knuckle bones gives you a little bit of information about or gives gives you information about how that role resolved. And so that's been a really interesting process to dig into. It actually ended up being a way harder design process than I originally thought it was going to be. And I had to basically write a set of esoterica to go with the hit sheet in the world and how they use it. And then in order to be able to remap it for the mechanics, that was a really interesting process. But it is a very trad game other than that. It's a very much a a dungeon crawling. There's a lot of great narrative abilities. Like for the item list, though we have a lot of item lists that give you the GM tools about stuff they could be finding. When the players roll for, for equipment, they don't get like um, a stop sign shield. They get something that can be used as a shield. They don't get a, a dirty diaper. They get something that can be something that stinks right like when they roll they just get a general classification like they've got two or three things that stink they've got one thing that does it and they've got their starting rubbish also too because then narratively they can say i'm going to pull out something that stinks and the gm just goes what is it right and they tell them what the stinky thing is and how they're using it in this circumstance and whenever you gross the gm out in the game you get mechanical advantage also too so again it, it encourages you to say all right, I'm going to think about this stinky thing I have and what it is and describe it in the most foul terms possible. Uh, and then you, and if I can make the GM blanch a little bit, I get to throw some extra extra chits when I when I throw. And so yeah. it's it's a super fun but I am that I mean it it is it is like you you're crawling through giant piles of rubble crawling across the surface of this place called the crust. A really great system so that'll that'll come out in a couple of months. And then I Toaster is our most recent release. It was done in partnership with Exalted Funeral, but and it was a a sledgehammer bright hammer hack with major influence by Nate from Highland Paranormal Society's in OSR Nate's outstandingly simple rules. I think uh, I could be wrong, but it's it's no sir is what it's pronounced. And I saw that Ray, another member of the Brain Trust, had done Ray's outstanding space rules and then a sci-fi hack of it. And when when Ray released that, I just opened up a Google Doc and I wrote down T O S R, and I was like, okay, what would what would Tony's what, what would my thing be? And then I was like, you know, that looks a lot like toaster, and so I put a separate second T in there. And toaster still wasn't spelled right, but it did phonetically say toaster at that point in time. T O S T R, and then it became Tony's something sentient toaster role-playing game. And I love Brave Little Toaster as a child. So I made a Brave Little Toaster inspired RPG where you can be small appliances in a big world in a dark space, trying to deal with your emotional feelings about that. And it is a, it is the most OSR game I've ever made. The rule, the, the role mechanics are still different. It's 2d6 roll under, but that actually is an OSR mechanic. That is that is Traveler. Traveler had a had a set you roll under an eight or a higher threshold based on if you had stats that bumped it on two d six. And so the it, it is it is definitely influenced by. And if I bubs the Traveler rules, any any of you grognards out there, you can feel free to at me later. I apologize. But two d six roll under was a was a mainstay of maybe it was roll over there 2d6 is a is a established osr thing not just a pbta thing the but anyways the the roll under was like the desire was to make you feel like small characters so when you roll in your stats you don't roll 2d6 for stats you roll 2d4 for stats which means any the bell curve is pulled down about three three numbers and so it's very hard to do unless you're using features or exerting energy or using teamwork or working creatively 
or evoking in 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 iToaster your what we call your emotional core, the thing that drives you. So being brave for the brave little toaster was the emotional core. But maybe you're dramatic or fatalistic or or something else is what your driving impulse is. And so whenever you embrace that to do good for your party, you can do that. But yeah, you're just playing as toasters going toaster. Actually, I don't know that anybody's played a toaster yet, but you're go- playing as appliances going on adventures. Madeline Ember, we got to work with her to make a phenomenal starter adventure in that really, really fun game. I, I, I also like character sheets that are very clean uh, and precise and easy to navigate and read. Like I put more emphasis into my character sheets than probably any other part of the design process, because I think that's your number one player facing thing. And I want it to tell the players a little bit about what's most important in the game. And I think most rule sets are just about how do we cram as much information as possible onto this sheet rather than here is the most important information. And so we've put it in a place that's easy to access, very, very obvious, right? And very easy for you to do. And the things that are less important for me tend to go closer to the middle of the sheet with the things that are most important, typically being at the top, but sometimes being at the bottom also too, because then they I can take up bigger spaces and stuff. And so iToaster, she has a battery on it because your charge is the biggest part, like keeping <laughs> yourself energized. And it could have just been like a single block with like, you know, write in how much charge you have and take it down or two blocks, you know, max charge and current charge. But it's actually a bat that looks that you move that like that you can fill in or, you know, bubble in or bubble down based on how much charge you have. And so it gave it a little bit more of a physical presence on the sheet and and gave it a lot more visual pop. And it's very obvious that it's an important piece of how the game is played. And there's little bitty rule hints on each of those things so that you know what you're doing as you're going, but it all fits on an A6 piece of paper. So a quarter sheet piece of paper. And so super fun, super easy, like your appliances, here are your features, here's your emotional core, here's what you're made out of, go, right? Like GM will, will throw weird stuff at you and you'll you'll work together to overcome it. So, And also the most prominent one that's going to be recent per this episode, down we go. You want to just... Talk about where that idea came from. That idea for Down We Go, which is our what we've started just calling our house OSR system, came from a gentleman. Yeah, a gentleman. Our house OSR system, Down We Go, came from a gentleman named, named Marcus Linderham. Uh, Marcus is a Swedish designer. We were in a number of groups together. We weren't friends. I don't know that I'd ever seen Marcus's name before. If I had, it hadn't stuck out. Marcus posted up a one-page rule sheet that was also the character sheet for a system that they he had created called Down We Go. And the concept was to take everything that Marcus had learned about the OSR and was thinking about about the OSR, and it was a design challenge to try to fit that entire, all those concepts in that style of play onto one A5, or or for people who aren't familiar with those terms, basically a half sheet of normal paper, right? And see if that was something that he could do. And he just posted it out as an image in the Minimalist RPG group over on Facebook. And I saw it and I was like, can we play this? I would love to play this. This looks super smart. Because again, I love, I love a lot of OSR concepts, but a good character sheet, you're going to get me every time. With a good character sheet. People put your character sheets on your Kickstarter pages. There are people like me who who want to know what we're going to be playing on and what that looks like. Because for a lot of people, that is a huge thing. It's what I spend 80% of my time as a player looking at is the character sheet. And mm-hmm. so, like, if you put it on your campaign and I know it's a good one, that immediately says, 
man, I want this. So when he, he puts it up, like, can we play it? We did a stream maybe a week or two later with a bunch of his friends from Sweden who are also like designers or people in the West Coast OSR group, which is not just very funny because West Coast thing is a very different thing in America than it is in Sweden, which just means the outer coast of Sweden. Uh, but there's a, there's a West Coast OSR group uh, that's absolutely phenomenal. And there's a ton of great design that's coming out. Sweden, but I just fell in love with it. And so anytime we were playing in an OSR module that somebody had on stream that they didn't have a system for, it was one of the two or three that I would recommend. Hey, what if we just use this? And then eventually became the one I would recommend if we, if they didn't specifically want to use like old school essentials or nave that I would say, well, why don't we just use down we go? And as I was talking to Marcus, Marcus was asking me for feedback after the first one. I gave him a little bit of feedback. I said, Hey, I just, I'd love if there's like a page of city rules, like not a lot. You know, just like just another like half page in addition to the the player page, the GM page on the back, you know, maybe have maybe have a couple other fun procedures that you can toss in if you want to kind of make this a little bit more of a campaign and to give the economy a sense of scale. Like I'm not a big somebody who cares a lot about economics, but I know a lot of players do and knowing how much, you know a gold is or what a coin is and how much that gets you like that, that all kind of matters. In his game, it was like you had enough to survive. You have a necessary survive and a little extra, or you've got a lot of money, and that was kind of the three levels of 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 coin that you could possibly have. And I was like, that'd just be kind of fun, you know, maybe a little bit of an inventory, like things you could buy back at the city, how much stuff costs, just you know, something short and easy. And then in the meantime, Marcus had actually released the first dungeon called the Tomb for that, which is what he ran us through during that first adventure, and he had this really am- amazing iterative and procedural design process where you roll an adjective when you go into the dungeon and that influences the feel and the flavor of the entire thing so you're anytime you go into the tomb you're going into the tomb the map and the floor plan look the same but what's in it is different because it could be flooded or it could be shrouded or it could be whatever and that's going to influence the the monsters the traps the the big bad the odds which are basically like the lieutenants or the captain monsters in there as well as other encounters and 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 visuals that you're going to see in that dungeon so you could play each dungeon four times and get a very different experience by going down in it and there's kind of this mad libs quality of rolling as you're prepping your dungeon for the gm to see how many things are in which of each room as you go through but this this it was a very interesting very creative again it was one page it was one page and it was everything a gm needed to run a dungeon four times for the same party with it being a different experience each time and i knew i already liked marcus and liked marcus's design that was the moment at which i was like marcus is doing some really smart things here and i want to figure out how to do this. So I just told Marcus, like, I'll, if you want, I would be happy to do a print run. I'd also be happy to work with you on development for this to make it a little bit bigger of a thing, see what we can do with it. Marcus was totally excited about that. I was excited about that. Marcus came back a couple days, a, a couple weeks later, and instead of one page of city rules, had created this space called Infinopolis, which is this shifting city, and had created a very simple set of procedures for how you create the city, which is you, there are six core districts. So you draw nine circles on a piece of paper that are all kind of connected with each other um, by their edges and they can be as big or as small as you want them but you put all nine on the 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 paper and they're all touching at least one other one in some capacity and then you assign six core districts that are always in the city and then three random districts out of the other six that are sometimes in the city and sometimes not or they're always in the city but you can't always find them essentially had created a city itself that embraced the anti-canon idea that I love of 
the city by its very nature is not always the same. It's not that it matters what's at your table or my table or how that's been played. Even at my own table, the city will be different when my players leave to go back down to a dungeon and come back again. They may not be able to find their way back to the same spot. And that creates some really interesting dynamics in play. And each of those had their own kind of same thing as the dungeons, these these sub-adjectives that then gave them flavor. So even if you could go back to, you know, the noble district every single time or the bazaar every single time, it was different every single time. And that was such an interesting thing. And there's an invitation to the players to say, hey, tell me, tell me, tell me what it means for it to be the singing bazaar. Tell me what it means for it to be the lush pleasure dome. Like, you know, those types of things that then you're taking notes and just building this out as you go, essentially created the ability for a GM with no prep other than a couple of roles to run a campaign worth of content out of that. And so then the question became, okay, for me, because this is this is me as a marketer, because that's a lot of what I spend my time doing. This is this is so smart. I I, I mean, I I constantly use the term genius. I think it's I think it's genius, right? I think Marcus pulled together some absolutely amazing things into this really bright minimalist package. None of this stuff takes up a lot of space, and and made it so that you could do so much. And I just wanted to see how big and how beautiful I could help Marcus make this project. And so we we figured out who we wanted to do the art, which is Simone Tometa, who is amazing. And Simone, if I mispronounce your name all the time on these things, please, at some point, let me know. Who's an Italian artist. And then I was like, hey, we've got three creators working on three different continents. How many creators from how many different places could we get involved with this? So currently in our core for our core contributors we have 11 different creators across nine different countries and sorry only eight different countries and uh, four continents who are currently contributing with our stretch goals we'll take it up to five and and 13 different countries wow. if we get all of our all of our different contributors in. and i think we may be adding a couple more uh, also too so it's turned into this this one page of rules right which i, I for me in design I, I tend to start with let me make the character sheet let me write down the core rules on one page and that's what i want to start with so starting with a one-page game and then saying what do we do with this is a hundred percent my jam right so like it's now about a 48 page zine not it's not a full page book now that said the core rules are still on the character sheet there's still one page only three changes have been made to the core rules since the inception all you have to give a player all a player needs to know is here's your character sheet the rules are at the bottom you assign two points into the into one of the four roles or into two of the different four roles which we can we can talk about the mechanics in a second and you're going to roll a d20 plus that role in different circumstances in order to say but the most important thing is just, just tell me what you're doing ask questions ask to see things ask to, you know talk about your character picking things up you know and pick a name for them and then put 10 things in their bag and let's go you know like that's it it's the same kind of simple process that i love that i think makes it us are good but the role system that marcus created fuses things like skill and class and abilities all into one single concept which is he which is called role on the sheet and there's four different roles sneaky mystical holy and bloodthirsty but within that you can you can make very customized character classes based on what you want to do and what level you're playing at all these other different things and so again it's this very simple very elegant design it opens up a lot of replayability, a lot of player choice, a lot of narrative realities, and then enc- encourages people to go in and say play. And then, but also includes things like high lethality. The original game, there was no way to up your HP. 
period. I I didn't like that. Other people didn't like it. We didn't even kill in a lot of characters. It just was hard for there to be no HP advancement. And so we like that's one of the few changes that have been made. Now every third third level you get one additional HP, which is not not a lot of advancement, but is something. And it means that after you've maxed out a character, you've you've increased your health to some degree, right? So mm-hmm. um Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Anyways, it's just, it's just become such a blast to work on. And it lets me do the thing like I talked about at the very beginning. Like, it's so much easier for me to go market Marcus's amazing down we go system than it is for me to go to talk about all the great things that Tony does because I'm not self-conscious. I'm not, I don't have to be self-aware. I just have to talk about how I fell in love with this amazing game and how great it's been to work with Marcus and an amazing team of designers now to be able to make this into a bigger project and, you know, hopefully fund the heck out of it on August 31st at ttrpg.link slash DWG live. So I'm pervy to most of these games. I've been through down we go. I've been through beards and beyond and specifically for the big one down we go that we're, that we're here like opening up today. Uh, I agree. I think the, the, sort of replayability design of fill in the Mad Libs, all these like procedural tables, all these like flavoring components for anyone who doesn't have the game, but should go get the game should go like at least check it out as a, as a case study would be really cool. I think there's a lot to learn here and like how to condense so many affordances into really seeing like what is necessary to make a, what do I want to say? 
sort of like an adventure action OSR game have so many levers to pull, but still maintain a lot of the same design pieces. Like, so like you were talking about the map of the dungeon does not change. What changes is everything that is inside of it or the flavorings that are uh, attributed to it, right? There's a difference between the wizard's tower, the heretic's tower, the alchemist tower and the watcher's tower. right? Right. And what if, you know, I'm looking at this now and like, what if the tower was double stacked and you were in like the wizard and the watcher's tower, right? Like, or, you know, you could sort of, there's a lot of manipulation that can happen in this design, which I think is really key to the versatility of these OSR procedures as I'm seeing in your games, as I'm seeing in other people's games, shout out to like Ava Islam, shout out to MV also has good Mm -hmm. OSR style games. And all of these examples kind of come back to keep the random pieces that being said the random outcome generators and dice rolling or cards or whatever you use kind of like at a simple level and this stack affordances or uses on top of those things that creates the versatility in a game and i think it's very very cool and a lot of like good narrative prompting because as you use more of like the dressing and stuff the more you use like the flavoring components of whose tower is it, you start to build out the world and you start to be able to lean into the things that are presented to you, right? If you're presented with a bunch of bandits and animated furniture and giant spiders and the wizard itself, you know, you're leaning into that way differently than like guard gnomes, test subjects, spectral slime and a flesh. Yeah. And, and it it was, you know, it's been really interesting. We did a five week public play series over on our YouTube channel where we just invited different people. Like we had, we had uh, Richard Ruain, who's borrow keep designer and just phenomenal person to play with. It was every week, and then it was me and Marcus every week, and then it rotated through two other NPCs. Eventually, Liam became a, a regular at the end also from the Hobbled Goblin podcast over in Australia. He was waking up like at 5 a.m. in the morning to play with us. It was just like such a trooper. But we had we had rotating NPCs for or, rotating PCs for the rest just to have people hop in, look at power scaling issues, see different people play around with the system. And it was a blast because we just went through this mega dungeon that, that Marcus has created that'll be part of the the campaign also too. And it's just been it's it's been so cool to see the different things people do with it, what evolves out of that, the questions people ask. Like if I want to have a pet as one of my slots, can I have a pet? Which then let us say, okay, like is the light spell more valuable or would it be better to create like a familiar spell or would it be better to create an alternate class later that's just the ranger and has a pet, right? Like mm-hmm. how do all these things play in? And so, you know, there, there's all these different pieces. But but one of the things I did not realize when we started down the path and that is like it is it is always the catch-22 when you're developing other people's games. Like I'm always very clear, Marcus is the designer. Like I am the developer. I have done less direct design on the game than anyone else that's not my job like i will have written things for the game i've written a sci-fi hack of the game called away we go that we'll be playing publicly for the first time this friday that i'm I'm super excited about but i've done very little work on the actual game other than to find the people ask the questions propose ideas right and say here's what we need to do and then work on on developing the overall product of the game and so the the reality is a lot of times those those different questions that you're asking people come from what came up in play, like, can I have a pet, right? But it also made me realize, like, Liam, after the second week or the first week of playing with us, um, went and wrote four alternate classes 
Like just was like, I mean, cause it's easy to hack. It's easy to see mm-hmm. here's how the abilities and the roles work and the rules are easy and crisp and clean. It's, it's D20 plus role, right? Like whatever level you have in role that would apply to see, to see like to, to, you know, to save versus something. So if you're, if you're trying to dodge out of the way of something, you're going to roll D20 plus sneaky, right? Which is basically the, the equivalent of like thief and roguish skills, but also gives a benefit to dodge. But if it was a mind control ability, you would roll plus mystical, which is the, the magical and elemental, unless it was maybe a, an ancient God. And then you might roll plus holy to resist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, there's all these different ways that you, you use it. It's very, it's a very simple process. But Liam, after a couple of weeks of playing, was like, I could make, my own darker version of this with like the cultist and the alchemist and, you know, the dark one and like all these other, other pieces that, that Liam was able to just pick up and do. And that's been what people were excited about in a lot of ways, but it's also what's made me so excited as I realized that, you know, um, Walton Wood, who's going to be coming on for editing. I was, the, he, he runs Ex Libris for Morksburg, which is this huge online thing. I think he was one of the first people to notice it. And it was really cool to see like him grab onto other people are going to make a lot of stuff out of this. Like I realized how easy it was to hack, but I didn't realize that this is a game that we're going to see a lot of hacks of because mm-hmm. Like you were saying, like if if you don't like the dungeon as 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 written, all the things you need to know how to design a dungeon are included in the one page of dungeon. Yep. And we just we went ahead and put it into rules just very recently. The the updated Ashcan now has the or the, the beta version, like the the rules we send out to people to, to check out. Now have like how you build your own dungeon, which is draw a map and then you're gonna answer like you're gonna do that same kind of mad libs process for what's in each one create the different thematic adjectives for your thing and and fill it out with some monsters from RB theory or from your own because it's all pretty easy to figure figure out and so like people are already starting to build and hack stuff on the game before it even goes live and that's been so tremendous to see but we're also adding like Aaron King they just put together a bunch of factions which are groups within the city that are buying for influencer control and they're not I actually don't think any of them are like the upper class members of society. They're like the dirt lickers or the steeple planters or the seal clubbers, which the seal clubbers are not people who go out and club seals. They're people who don't believe there should be any barriers or seals on anything. So they break locks, erase lines and move things around. And they have the sinuous rills, which are the people who write lines and create barriers and do other stuff that they are diametrically opposed to. And Aaron, has done a phenomenal job of it and even just created a, a quick set of faction rules for as you interact with these and again it's a half sheet piece of paper for faction rules and guess what your game doesn't have to include faction rules if you're like i don't want factions don't play with faction rules you're just doing dungeon cross just crawl through dungeons you don't want to go back to the city don't go back to the city again the core rules are still just that one page but then we're adding in Tamu, uh, the dovetailer on Twitter, is going to be doing local businesses. And each of those will have a couple simple options for how you interact and interface with them and how they shift as the city shifts. We've got Babblegum Sam, Sam Samuel Mui, who's doing the events and holidays, which will be things that happen in the city. We just, we've got Diogo Nogueira from the Latin American Brazilian RPG community, who's a phenomenal designer, is up for an any right now for his Halls of Blood King. He's doing a, a one-page dungeon also, too. We've got Ava 
Islam, working with Madeline Ember to develop hex crawl procedures and two hex crawls for part of the process because like you might want a hex crawl. But the most recent one that I'm just super thrilled by is we've got Rolfer Tarsk, who's a member of the Brain Trust, whose name is tremendously escaping me right now, who did Bakhto's Terrifying Cuisine and is is just such a tremendous designer. And when, when I thought about, there was a point at which I was reading through some of the materials that that Aaron King had made for some of the factions. And I was like, I want to know what insane stuff happens on the roofs of Infinopolis, right? Like, I want to know about the weird things that take place up here that the rest of the city doesn't even know about at this moment. And so I want Rolfer Tarks to do a, a point crawl for me because I love Bakhto's terrifying cuisine. I think it's one of the best point crawls that are out there. And I just want something where people are scrambling through the upper echelons of the city, trying to figure that out. And they sent me three pitches and they're all, they're all amazing. And I don't know which one <laughs> to pick the, and we may not just pick one. We may be like, two of these are great. Let's do two of these. Um, but it's been great to then just bring people in and say, the rules are so light. The rules are so simple. Write a point crawl. It's designed for this system. But that's that's essentially mostly system agnostic. Like you could pick it up and use it with anything if you wanted to later on. But but that it specifically embraces the idea of what Infinopolis is. And it's been great to just watch designers who have never interacted before reading what somebody else across the world wrote writing something that's inspired by that and then embraces that and then builds on it and then watching the next person take a little bit from each of them and do something else in a completely different direction and place. I love it. Like it, it like I get fired up every morning thinking about it. It is mm-hmm. like, I can't imagine developing a game in another way. Like I know that the tendency is to hire you, you hire one or two designers and I'm like, what if more games just had as many people touching them as possible be, and it was easy because the rules weren't complex and they weren't doing rule work. They were saying, give your voice to this, you know, like you look at this thing that we've made and make it a little bit yours because we, we want to give you that space and we want you to be a part of this. I think there's something so invitational about that. So as we've been developing, what, what, what are we going to call the license? Because originally Marcus released it under CCBY 4.0, which is great, but doesn't let you do things like tell fascists and racists and bigots that they can't use your system. So I was like, that's fine. We're going to, we're going to take, we're going to, we're going to relicense it now, the new version as, as an actual third party license, which is still just by attribution. If you're, if you're a small designer who wants to use it, you can, but we're going to call it together. We go because we want a space where we can say, if you're not interested in unified, diverse voices, making amazing things together, this isn't a system for you. Go somewhere, go somewhere else and make horrible things. If you are somebody who's interested in working with us in a system and want to make your own factions inspired by what Aaron did or, or make your own businesses based on what Pamu did or make your own events and holidays based on, on what, what, what Sam does, that's all included in the license. You can also just totally hack Marcus's original system, make dungeons, do whatever you want to. And I am so excited to see Marcus's game explode into something that so many people across the globe can hack and make their own. And even as we brought in partners again from the get-go, it's been, what do you love? When we invited MV to be a collaborator, I immediately knew I wanted MV to do NPCs because MV plays the most unique and oftentimes bizarre characters whenever they play on stream. And so I was like, I, I can't think of somebody better to give NPCs over to than 
envy who will who will take everything this is and push it in all kinds of different directions. And I could like when we started talking to the people at Planar Compass about doing a stretch goal, I was like, hey, I really want you to to think about what you do. So that could be C-related. It could be interplanetary. But they're making what is the planar system as a stretch goal? What is the planar system of of down we go look like? And it's a it's a randomly generated process that is different every single time without without surprise. We're talking to the Drakes about they're going to be doing the the upper the upper class high power echelons of Infinopolis. The lieges of Infinopolis will be defined by the Drakes as a stretch goal if we get to that point who did the Court of Blades recently. And so that's what they're seeped in. And part of that is that's what you do. That's what you know. I want this to be easy on you. I want to give it your voice. But also another big part of it for me is is 100% like it's a smart marketing play. Like it's a smart marketing play to be able to say, I want you to do this because I want your voice here. Your voice talks a lot about this thing. Talk about this thing in this game. But it then is easier for them to go to their audience and say, we wrote a thing for a game. It's got our voice in it. It's not something we just did because somebody else had something they wanted us to do in a certain way. And so if you like our stuff, you might like this. Right. And so we really wanted to create the space that was smart, but that was also very unitive and very much about how we are inviting others in to to uplift everybody in that process. It's good. I mean, it takes a lot of the concepts I'm fond of, like modular games in terms of like being able to add in or take away rules as you see fit outside of the base, or maybe even some cases replace the base system. But, you know, as you were talking, I'm really surprised no one has thought of roll dungeons. That's what I've thought of. Like, oh, if I create something, I'd probably do like a dungeon that can level up and just use all four of the adjectives, but each one's a different floor. I love that. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a great idea. And I would say, if you want to do that, let's do it. <laughs> like, um, I love the idea that like, even like, yeah, dude, like every time, like you can make it either or, right? Like every mm-hmm. time, like <laughs> it's a great kind of planted concept, right? Of like, hey, there's a dungeon out there. It's, it's sentient. It's alive. It's growing in power, right? Mm-hmm. If you don't address it, it's going to get stronger and stronger and stronger. But also if you go and fight it and it kills you, it might get stronger also too. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. at what point do you decide to ignore it? At what point do you have to deal with it? At what point is that like, I mean, you know, like, is it a, what's there's a, there's a game. I'm going to butcher it. Is it like 13th age that has living dungeons that like go across the world? I don't know. There are oh, a couple God. things out there that have like living dungeons, but the concept of a dungeon where the roles are actually moving up is a very cool concept. Yeah. It even fits like, I feel like the, in this setting or in this feeling, I feel like it's a kind of a, heart the city beneath feel where like the heart is bringing like is calling to you in some fashion forces you to go deeper and deeper so i feel like the more evolved a dungeon gets then at some point it's like you have to go there it's so infamous that like it's just making it palpable in your mouth that like it has to be explored and it might be a meat grinder event for you but yeah i think that's a, a fascinating concept that i'm really surprised no one else is doing I mean, there you go, Jamie. That's what you, that's what I'm you're going to do. You got to hop out there and make it happen. Let someone steal it. It's fine. Like, yeah, absolutely. Whichever are. happens first. I can't create every dungeon concept. So, right. wow. No, I, I love, I love what down we go. It, together we go really is creating here. Cause I think I've been thinking a lot recently about like 
cooperative initiatives, like making, I think, what are they? I, I might be pronouncing this wrong, but San Janeiro, uh, the San Janeiro yeah. co-op, yeah. like what they do for the zine every quarter or however often they produce that. Like I would love to see more and more and more projects take on that formation instead of like having a attributed main brand body that's producing that stuff and just sort of like really going in on the revenue share on a passive like equity level that could be really cool for everyone and support like it's one of those things where like if there are enough of those cooperatives out there and you're touching so many of them like if I work on 20 different cooperative passive income sort of things like I'm now starting to accrue maybe like I don't know, $100 every month or something like that. I don't right. know. Like it depends on how, how successful any of them are. Yeah. And how yeah successful yeah. and saturated. Yeah. But I think that, I don't know, it's just really fascinating. And I think it, it can really change the scope of at least of recent discourse of like cents per word and what do you pay freelancers and how do you budget for those things? But like, what if you just didn't budget? What if you just got all these people together, layout designers, graphic designers, artists who just really fell in love with a pitch and like, yes, I would love to work on this for like, and just have maybe like a project lead who kind of like wrangles all those cats together. Right. But it's basically what you're essentially doing is acting as project lead for this. And yeah, uh, and, and I've realized I really like this is, you know, it's one of those things you you constantly move around. You kind of constantly kind of try to figure out like, what is my unique contribution to the space that I'm in? And mm-hmm. I think at default, we're like, okay. RPG space, what are default things you could be? You could be a layout person. You could be a graphic designer or an artist. You could be a, a writer. You could be a lot of other things. We we don't oftentimes think about like development and marketing as those roles. Like mm-hmm. what does it mean to build a team, to put something together? But if you look at what bigger companies that we're oftentimes envious of are doing, they're using their money to leverage a lot of that. There's like, mm-hmm. I'm just going to go out and hire the five to 10 people that I want to hire to work on this project and then we've got the money to dump into marketing. So they don't have to necessarily be savvy about it, but they, they, they are building things in a more developmental mindset, which the average indie creator isn't doing because we feel, I think locked in our roles. A lot of the time is like, mm-hmm. Oh, that's not a thing that I know how to do, but it starts with just, okay, I've got five friends. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, or here are five people I want to work with, or I'm looking for five people to fill these roles who are interested in this thing. Let's get together and have some conversations and figure out who might want to do what. Please let me know in advance what you are so we don't end up with a room of five, you know, artists, but no writers or anything else. They'll make a cool art zine at that point in time. Who cares? Like, you know, like there's so much that I would love to see more of come out in that space. And because I'm not good at a lot of the detail oriented stuff, I oftentimes think I'm not a good project manager. But project management is far more about people. Mm-hmm. making sure that they're doing their work on time and continuing to keep plates spinning and things moving forward and less about like I have to get all my stuff done by a certain date other than checking in with people which is one of the reasons I've loved like I love that that role so much because hopping from person to person checking in with them asking questions giving input giving feedback taking what they've done moving it over here to this person saying hey here you go Here's the next step. Like, let's like, what do you need? How do I help you? You know, what can we do? That's stuff that drives me that I'm, I love that I'm very good at, but it's not, it's not something we think of as a typical role in the RPG community. And so I would really want to encourage people, like you've got to find 
the things you love to do and then find people you love to work with to do the other things. And yes, mm-hmm. on small first stab projects, you're going to be doing a lot of stuff you don't like. You're going to be putting together a lot of things that that don't fit. And you're going to have to find that one person to pay. But, but the reality is there are so many good people out there. We were also really adamant about for Down We Go, paying people what they ask. Sometimes getting that number out of people is hard, but it's good to start the conversation up front. Because sometimes there's this feel-out process of what's your budget, which is a very reasonable question. Every freelance person should start with that question, but they should also realize lots of times the answer is, I don't know. So like, if it's something I wasn't planning on doing, I don't have a budget. Tell, go ahead and just tell me your number. Or I can tell you some other numbers that we're using and use that as a guideline. But a lot of people are willing to be paid after a Kickstarter funds. A lot of people are willing to be to be part up front, part afterwards, to be part of a co-op where they're just going to get a dividend out of whatever it makes. Like a lot of people are willing to do those types of things, but you have to have those conversations up front. Once if you go to Kickstarter or go to GameFounder, go wherever, and there's all of a sudden a hundred thousand dollars on the table, those conversations are a lot more fraught than they are if there's a thousand dollars on the table. Or I would say in the best situation, when there's no money on the table and figuring out what things are going to look like in advance, which at that point, everything is equal is a great option. This person's mm-hmm. getting paid this, this person's getting paid this, this person's getting paid this with bumps at this, this, and this. That's also great. But you have to pay people what they ask and you have to pay them well. And one of our goals, like we do have at least two stretch goals planned out right now that are contributor pay bumps, even though we paid people towards the top end of what somebody would typically ask for in our field, which would be, you know, in that 10 to 20 cent range, we were coming in near the 20 cent mark most of the time, if not at it or above it. And that's something that we take a lot of value in. And we're still not like, oh, we paid people well, so now we're done. We're like, no, we're doing this together. And even if you contributed a page to this or, you know, if you contributed 10 pages to this, mm-hmm. like, we want to value everyone's contributions equally. There are there are a couple exemptions of that. Those are people who just like, they may have done an art piece, but they weren't necessarily. But anybody you see a picture of on the page um, that you see is given a title, that their contribution is listed in a specific way, those people are scheduled to get pay bumps as we up fund. And so, and that's not to say that the other people won't. It's just to say that that's what we've committed to at this point in time is that people who we said, hey, we want to work with you. We'd also like to attach your name, your your face and your voice to this project. I only think it's it's reasonable to say we know that that's going to be something that we're going to market on. Therefore, you deserve to get paid more if that marketing is successful. Yeah, I think in addition to what you're saying here on the episode I had with Tracy Barnett, and then similarly, Spencer Campbell was inspired by that very same episode. Just this conversation of like, instead of, you know, creating additional stretch goals or like, again, with this cooperative concept is that as we make more money, everyone makes more money. Like we don't want, we don't need to provide more things to a product that people are already in love with. And anything that we want to do additionally, we can do later down the pipeline in a different marketing campaign or product offering or whatever that looks like for that project. Um, But, you know, for, for Tracy, it was very much that when their project bumped up in in total value it's like okay everyone's getting paid 600 oh now everyone's getting paid 625 oh now everyone's getting paid 650 regardless of their level of contribution it was just something that tracy felt was a good choice to do for that particular project especially with so many touching hands and so i'm in love with that i'm in love with the sense of like if i were to make a game and like okay to fund this game we're gonna need 
what maybe like three grand total and then we make it to four and five and six it's like cool everyone just makes like 200 more dollars that's right. not bad and i don't like there's not more that i want to give for this project right now because i don't want to squander those bits on like feeling like that the thing that we're already providing isn't already valuable right, right. i think there's like this misconception of stretch goals being like okay if i make more value for the game then more people will back it but it's like but people are already backing the game right like they're yeah. already involved with what's going on and they already find value because they've already given you the dollars like the stretch the, goals are just like the cool. true secret to stretch goals sometimes people will go back and yeah. up pledge because they want to see a stretch goal met sometimes people will go share because a stretch goal will be, is is near being met, and that and the second one is actually a very valuable thing to understand. Sometimes yeah. people will go share. The biggest thing stretch goals do is give you as the creator the excuse to go share. Hey, we're getting near a stretch goal, and they really should be understood as just sheerly another marketing tool. Like if mm-hmm. your game needs that thing to function, it shouldn't have been a stretch goal. Yep. And if it doesn't need that, you're you're not exciting your base about it. So all of our stretch goals, we have one. We have only one material improvement, and it's one I'm I'm excited about, but it's also connected to the number of backers, not just the number of money. And that is, if we get enough editions of the book that we're making, we can take the the gray-white image on the cover of the skull that is absolutely phenomenal art that Simone did, and we can we can metal foil it with silver instead. Woo! Yeah. Like, I mean, like that's the, that's the one material thing. And, but I have to have, I have to get justifiably close. I, I have to print a minimum of a thousand books to do that. We've got a hardback and a softback option, which I don't know if I can combine. I'm, I'm working with, with our, our printer on that right now because it's the same size. I think we should be good to go, even if it's two different, two different binding styles, but I've, I've got to hear back from them on the, but they, that's, that's a number of backers level, right? They've got a thousand, a thousand print minimum for that. I don't need a thousand backers to do that, but I need to be able to buy a thousand copies of the book overall in order to do that. And that's a different price point. And so that's, that's where we're kind of looking at. That's the only material one. Every other one, we're hiring somebody else to pay them to make great things, right? That's every stretch goal we have is connected to that. And not all of them will go in the book. Like, by and large, the book will be the size it is from the beginning to end. What it'll do is get more content out for that. Some of them will come out as pamphlet adventures. Those ones will be higher level stretch goals because they have a material cost and a and a paying the person cost. Uh, we've got a cool procedurally generated hex maps uh, stretch goal very high up that will it'll be a 11 by 17 map that you can put out that'll have infinopolis in the city and then a bunch of empty hexes and then some things that you can generate to go in those hexes mm-hmm. um, and then also as your party is exploring different ruins you can say here's where the tomb is on the map here's where the tower is on the map you can create your own version of the lands around Infinopolis, and we'll do that at a, at a higher stretch goal and it'll basically be a build your own hex crawl option and madeline ember who's working with ava to do the uh, the hex crawl things is doing the art for both both of the hex crawls that'll be in the book as well as for the hex crawl map that we'll do really big and then we'll have another one to add sticker packs to that where you'll have a couple stickers you can pop down to make major kind of event spaces uh, on the map and then fill in the rest yourself so those are the only real material things we're adding and mostly because like they came up later in the process. They weren't in the original budget for it. I could just raise this funding goal at this point in time, but they really are stretch goal worthy of like, we're going to give you another thing. We like it. And it's the kind of thing where if we, if, if the basic funding was successful, I would come back 
six months to a year from now and go, all right, we're going to fund again, but we're going to fund for all this extra stuff that we want. Other cool stuff. We've got Luth the Body, who does Dungeon Synth, who's doing a soundtrack for Infinopolis. It'll be available digitally or on a cassette yeah. tape. A lot of cool, just a lot of cool people in the scene who are doing a lot of really amazing work. I'm trying to make sure I have not forgotten anybody. We had an art piece by Johan Noir, Morkborg, Evelyn Moreau also did an art piece for us for our bestiary. Just, just an absolutely amazing full crew of it. Johnny Isarina, who's done layout on all my books and does all of our graphic design is helping me build the campaign and doing layout for all that also. And so just, just killer team that I couldn't be more thrilled with. We will have actual plays going the entire time. You can check them out all the stuff over at ttrpg.link slash DWG live. Again, if you want to, if you want to see it wherever it's at in the process, we're also in the biggest risk we're taking in the entire process is putting it on game found and not Kickstarter. Worst case scenario, it's, it's, Worst case scenario is we just barely fund, in all honesty, at that point in time, because it means we probably could have done better on Kickstarter. Ideal scenario is we still just blow through everything because our own in-house marketing is good enough and the support we get from GameFound, which does provide a lot of support, is good, but it isn't, doesn't have the same user base as Kickstarter does. Mm-hmm. And so it's not a known quantity. I have to kind of explain what GameFound is as I'm going with people, but it's a crowdfunding site just for tabletop uh, games, both role-playing and board. We're actually only the third RPG product that will be going live on it. The first was Vast Grim. The second is um, Adam Vance's of World Champ Game Co.'s Cyber Metal 2012. Uh, and then Down We Go will be the third one right before the closed beta ends. And they open it up for other people. There's some really cool stuff happening on GameFound. There's a lot of support they're going to be able to add it. The marketing potential is better because it basically lets you create, instead of a page that has one image and a two-sentence description, you basically are able to build a little bit of a sales funnel for your game. So you can you can explain more about it. Like ours is... Ours is 50% of our Kickstarter page is what's up right now on draft. So it's, here's what it is. Here's a little bit of th- thematic stuff. Here's some of the details about the contributors and what's going to be in the game. And then we'll add in basically just the pledge levels, the add-ons and the stretch goals when we go to the final version that's going to be live. And then that'll immediately switch over to GameFound being our pledge manager right after the fact. So it's all integrated into one system. And if you click follow, it lets us let you know when things are going to go live. It lets us let you know uh, when the campaign's almost done. It lets us keep you up to date on that. But we can choose whether we communicate to everybody who's clicked follow or every or just people who have already backed, as well as a couple other segments within that. And so it's a lot it's a lot better if you haven't started building an email list as a creator or a substantial one to be able to say, hey. If I put it on GameFound, I'll be able to communicate with people via email through their system. You won't get those emails, but you will be able to communicate with people via that. So there's some uh, some really great quality of life stuff that GameFound's doing that I really, really like. But it's also, it's a new company in the crowdfunding sphere. So that's going to be a, a question about how that plays out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Amazing. I know that we had some topics that we want to get to, but we're at the 90 minute mark here. So we're probably going to have to do a part two for you, Tony. Uh down I refuse. I refuse. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. I would love to come back okay. anytime. Well, hmm. Invites you to the party. Doesn't want to stay. All right. Cool. You know. You know. I always want the juice. I always want all the yeah. juice I can get. Hashtag um, Juice Nation. Hashtag Juice Nation. So. It's been a while. Tony, thank you so much for being here. All of the links and information about Down We Go will be down below in the show notes for anyone who catches on this episode per the recording of this it should be out during the marketing campaign and if it's not i'm a butthole but that shouldn't happen tony thank you so much for being here would you once again please give your plug spiel and everything like that in case someone made it to the end here and needs a reminder of who you are yeah my name is tony vicinda i in addition to all the other things i do i'm 
Chief Alchemist at Plus One EXP, which is a weird little brand that multi-classes in tabletop game design, beard and skincare alchemy. And the Bardic College of Content Creation, our, our main hope and desire is that amazing designers find great players who love their games and that great players find amazing designers whose games they can love. Do that in a lot of different ways. You can check us out on YouTube at youtube.com slash plus one EXP for all of our past content, short reviews, interviews, actual plays, all kinds of stuff like that, mostly with designers. So it's very design intensive and working with people who create games to help you see how those games are played and hear our thoughts about those games. So you can check out our current games in a couple different places. If you go to plus1exp.com, you can link out to to most of those. I mean, you can pick up any of our games that are in print there, except for iToaster, which is on exaltedfuneral.com. You can check out all of our games at tonyplus1.itch.io digitally as well and then down we go we'll be at ttrpg.link slash dwg live whenever you hear this thank you everyone for sitting down and hanging out and listening to tony alongside me i have learned a lot and there's a lot peaking my brain right now so i hope you enjoyed the show i enjoyed the show and we will see you next time or you will hear us next time this is an audio medium. Say bye to the people, Tony. Bye to the people! Bye! Alright, that's a wrap. Thank you for taking the time to sit down and hang out with Tony and I. We really appreciate it. You can find links and resources down below in the show notes, such as getting in touch with Tony or other episodes with similar topics. If you want to be a part of the conversation, please come and join the Community Discord server. Also, Make sure to subscribe to the Draw Your Dice Patreon, where you can get access to early releases of episodes from as soon as we interview. Thanks again for stopping by, and as always, I will catch you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.